Thanks for joining today. Before we get started, please make sure you have subscribed and are liking what's getting put out. We're going to get back into discussing some of the physics and biomechanics of the human body because we can use this to our advantage in order to get better, res better responses from our exercise. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. And so we're going to uh, be discussing some of the key concepts that relates to the physics of how the human body works. I know, big troublesome topic for a lot of people. But we're going to look at basically four distinct uh, things here. We're going to look at what's referred to as the kinematic chain, what's referred to as lines of pull, the lever systems that we use in our body, and then how our center of mass, center of gravity, and base of support will be impacted based off of the exercises that we use and how we go about doing the exercises. So let's start off by talking about the kinematic chain. So the kinematic chain is simply a description of how the muscles, the bones, and the joints are all working together to allow us to move. In this, we have two distinct ways of looking at the kinematic chain. We can discuss this as a closed chain episode. This is where the distal end of the limb is fixed. Or as an open chain episode, this is where the distal end is free to move. And so we might be working the same muscles, but the way in which we're using the kinematic chain is going to impact directly the physics that are being applied to the muscles and the resulting effect that exercise is going to have. When we start looking at how the muscles are going to work and how the bones are going to work in terms of allowing us to do movement, we have to look at what's referred to as the lines of pull. And the lines of pull is the direction of force relative to the reference axes that we're looking at. And this is where we have to go back and remember our physics equations. Force equals mass times acceleration. But we have a problem. The problem is that the body is not planar. The body is not one flat line. We have the geometry of the body in which we have an x-axis, the transverse plane, a y-axis, the sagittal plane, or the z-axis, the coronal plane, that has to be incorporated into the movement. And so we end up getting what's referred to as a resultant force. And the resultant force is based off of the sum of forces, based off of the y-axis and the x-axis through sine and cosine of the angle of application. What this does is this generates a rotational or a torque movement at the joints that are moving. In this, we're going to have the ability to maximize our x-axis and our y-axis based off of the angle of pull that's happening within the muscle itself. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we're combining the x and the y-axis to give us the maximum amount of force available, where as we get closer to a pure vertical axis, we're going to lose the cosine variable, the x-axis. As we get to a purely horizontal line of pull, we're going to lose the y-axis, the sine variable, within the sum of all forces. And so when we start looking at how much muscle force we're able to generate, it's about combining the x and the y vectors of force in terms of getting the summed forces within the movement. That distinct factor within the development of forces that generates that gets generated within muscle strengths is why if we look at model one and model two here on the image, why we have hypertrophy in which the fibers get bigger cross-sectionally and not hyperplasia where we get more fibers following training. The bigger the fiber, the longer 
the time we're going to have both X and Y components to the motion within the muscle within that line of pull. And so that's very specific. We start looking at lines of pull within the muscle, within the fiber itself. But it's not just the fiber itself that's going to give us a line of pull, but the angulation that the muscles have, in which we have distinct shapes of muscles, parallel, unipinnate, bipinnate, and multipinnate, that will all provide different distinct lines of pull based off of how they are oriented around the central tendons. And then we have the convergent muscle, and the convergent muscle is going to give us zero fixed line of pull, where we have an infinite number of lines of pulls that are available. Based off of the number of lines of pull that we have within each distinct muscle type, we're going to be able to get greater amounts of strength, where the convergent muscle will, will be able to provide the greatest amount of strength, be able to produce the most mechanical force because it's never going to be losing either the X or the Y component to the motion, whereas the parallel will provide the least amount of strength, the least amount of force, because it will very quickly lose both the X and the Y based off of the, the orientation of the body and the orientation of pull being generated by the muscle within the exercise. The lines of pull is going to combine with the lever system that we're going to attempt to generate motion with. So the levers are simply just the description of how forces are being placed around the joint that's going to lead to the movements that we're looking at. We classify them on three distinct classes, first class, second class, and third class. Each one's going to have a distinct advantage and disadvantage based off of force or torque that's being available, the tensile strength that we can develop, and the overall power that can be generated. And so how can we look at these lever systems? Well, if we look at in terms of the body, we have first-class levers, such as in between the skull and the cervical vertebrae. We have a second-class lever system, such as what we see down in the foot and ankle. And then we have a third-class lever system, such as what we see with the elbow in the upper extremity. And if you notice, the difference between each one of these is the relative distance between the application force, that is the muscle acting, and the load, the resistance, that the muscle has to act against. Where in the first class lever system, the resistance and the force are on opposite sides of the joint, what's referred to here as the fulcrum. In the second class lever system, the force has a longer distance to the fulcrum relative to the resistance. Where in the third class lever system, the resistance has a longer distance than the force does to the fulcrum. And what this does is this provides, based off of the distance between the resistance and force loads relative to the point of rotation, we get a distance, what's referred to as a lever arm. The longer the lever arm, the more advantage that distinct physical force has. So in third-class lever systems, the resistance has a longer lever arm than the force does, than the muscle force does. Whereas in the second-class lever system, the resistance has a shorter lever arm than what the muscle force or the muscle strength lever arm has. Those distinct differences leads to distinct advantages and disadvantages between the various lever systems. And so if we look at what happens within the various types of lever systems based off of the kinematics of the systems. So let's see how we can go about utilizing these lever systems to our advantage or disadvantage within the gym. So notice that we have the purple 
muscle tension line and the red load line. Now notice how I now get more mechanical advantage as the load becomes closer to the fulcrum, whereas the resistance, as, as the muscle force stays further away. Now what happens if I flip this? Now I have less mechanical advantage. And so this is where, in terms of that atlo-occipital articulation, we want to have good, correct ergonomic posture, where the more forward I bring my head, the more muscle action I'm going to need, whereas the more I can tuck my chin in and keep everything in an erect posture, the less muscle tension I will have. I can see the same type of action in terms of the spinal erectors around the pelvis in terms of the ability to keep an erect posture is the same type of lever system. And so I lose advantage based off of where I have those lever arms relative to each other, where it's the greatest when I get the muscle force to be greater than the resistance arm, and it's the least when I get the resistance arm to be greater than the force arm. So now let's take a look at the second class. So in the second class lever, as I move through the motion, I start to lose mechanical advantage. I start to lose mechanical advantage as the two force arms start to have an equal distance from the fulcrum based off of the vertical axis. And so as I move through the second class lever, I start to lose the mechanical advantage that I get as the difference between the two lines becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. And so this is where you can think about it's kind of easy to stand a little bit on your tiptoes, but it's very hard to stand all the way up on your tiptoes. Now, some would say, oh, well, it's about a balance issue. But the balance issue that you're talking about is the ability to keep that mechanical advantage in terms of force of contraction. So let's take a look at the third class lever system and watch what happens as I move through the third class lever. Now notice, as I went through the third class lever, at the very bottom and at the very top of the motion, I had the greatest mechanical advantage. However, in the mid-range, I had the least mechanical advantage. And so this is where, if you go to the fitness centers and you watch the people doing like the bicep curls. And so when we start looking at that, we have to remember that most of the joints within the extremities are going to be third-class lever systems. And so when we're watching people do bicep curls, for example, one of the things that happens is that we're going to get a sticking point. And so that sticking point is the distance that we have in that mid-range where we have the greatest lever arm distance between the load and the muscle. And so because we have that least amount of lever arm in the muscle relative to the load, we can produce the least amount of mechanical advantage. And so one of the things we can do is we can use that point as an isometric load point, where we can use that point within the mid-range as an eccentrically loading point. Because it provides the greatest disadvantage, we have the greatest potential for mechanical overload and thus mechanical growth factors to be stimulated.
meaning we can produce the greatest amount of muscle growth. If we were to load within those mid-ranges, more than at the very top or at the very bottom of the motion. The other thing we can do is we can change the angulation by which we attack the muscle. And by changing the angulation by which we attack the muscle, we reduce the mechanical disadvantage that we might have in those mid-range points. So the other thing we have to look at in terms of the physics of movement is what's between center of mass, center of gravity. Center of mass and center of gravity is approximately 56% of your body height. And it's a static point, which means that that point is going to stay relatively stable on a horizontal line, even though the body is going to be moving. So what's going to happen is that based on how we move, we're going to have to develop distinct muscle actions in the X and in the Y axis and in the Z axis as we move through space in an attempt to correct the displacement that we have based off of load to one side of the body or the other. This is where we can utilize the need to keep a static center of mass and center of gravity in our lower extremity exercise sessions so as to train the, quote, core. This is where we don't have to sit there and do the six-minute abs or the seven-minute abs or the seven-minute crunch routines or the seven-minute ab routines. If we're going to train lower body, if we're going to train doing things like deadlifts and squats, where we can utilize selected movements that will maximize the displacement that might have in the center mass and center gravity, along with changing the base of support. The base of support is the relative differences that we see in between the distance of foot contacts to the ground relative to the line of center of gravity as we go through the motions. And so when we start talking about movements and stability in the gym, it's not just about center of mass and center of gravity, it's also about base of support. The more stable my base of support, the wider my stance is, the more I can have displacement of center of mass and center of gravity without losing that control mechanism. And that's because what we do is we basically establish a larger area of control. And by establishing a larger area of control, we minimize the displacement of that center of mass and center of gravity away from the vertical line, which means we're going to minimize the X and the Z motion of the center of gravity and center of mass in the motions that we see within doing full body lower extremity exercise. It's the same thing that we can look at when we start looking at the difference in utilization of basis support on a bench press versus on a push-up or a basis support that we see uh, when we look at utilizing uh, single limb actions versus double limb actions. And so let's take a look at some of the stereotypical exercises we might see within the gym and how we can apply that center of, ba- center of mass, center of gravity, and base of support, as well as the type of muscles that we might see acting in order to maximize the activation that's taking place and maximize the resultants that we might see or the results we might see from our exercise session. That is, be able to produce the most amount of strength, produce the most amount of force that we might be able to produce within the gym. So let's take a look at a few examples of exercises that we might all do in the gym. And let's discuss how we can utilize center mass, center of gravity, lever systems, and muscles, lines, and poles to our advantage to maximize our efforts. 
So if we look here in a push-up, the push-up can vary its advantages, its disadvantages, and its workload based off of placement of hands, placement of feet, in order to establish a wide or narrow base of support, as well as change the angulation of pull that we might see within the muscles of action during the push-up, as well as where we might have pauses based off of sticking points within the third-class lever systems that we're utilizing in the action. Something very similar we might see within the bench press, where we can utilize hand placement and width of hand placements within the exercise, as well as angulation of the body relative to the bench, in order to either cause an advantage or disadvantage to the physics of the motions that are taking place. Along with sticking points that might occur based off of lines of pull and the third class lever systems that we are utilizing, as well as the base of supports that we might have during the activity. Now, if you notice here, we have two distinct types of chest flies. The difference that we see between the chest flies here is the angulation relative to gravitational load. That is how much of the y-axis relative to the x-axis we might be utilizing in terms of advantage or disadvantage to the motion that we see within the chest fly. Notice we're still going to use the pectoralis muscles, pectoralis major in particular, to generate the majority of the movement. However, because of the change in the y-axis, the load forces placed on the pectoralis muscle will vary. Something we can use when we look at bench pressing as well. Okay, what about lower extremities? Well, if we look at it, we're going to have a deadlift and a power clean. Very similar angulations at the very bottom of the exercise. However, we're going to change where that weight happens to be relative to the center of mass, changing the center of mass to center of gravity of the person, causing additional stability to be utilized. And because we have this change in angulation and change in position of the body and change in position of the weight, we're going to have greater or less muscle requirements within the activity. So we can also see when we start looking at squats, whether, whether it's a front squat or a rear squat. In terms of where is that weight and how is that weight being displaced around my center of, center of mass and center of gravity, and how is that going to impact the amount of muscle control that's necessary in order to keep the body stable and allow for movements to take place. We can see this same exact thing if we start looking at heavier and heavier loads that we might incorporate within the exercise. Where heavier loads may require more muscle force and more muscle strength in order to generate the motion required, but it's also going to require greater amounts of stabilization and different angulations of the body within the motion, along with foot placements, in order to establish a broader base of support due to the ever-increasing load that's being placed around the center of mass and center of gravity. We're uh, going to continue the discussion of how we can utilize physics and physiology here in terms of getting our responses within the gym. Looking at a question that was asked off of the previous discussion. Since force equals mass times acceleration, and we know that the mechanical tension and force is the stimulus for growth, can we voluntarily and maximally accelerate our arm in order to grow muscle? Meaning, if the force is high because acceleration is maximal, 
are we able to generate maximal growth? Simply from the mass of the limb we're trying to accelerate. It's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question because it's going to look at two distinct factors that come into play as it relates to muscle growth, as well as the stimulation that we see within the exercise responses. And so when we start looking at this, what we're really looking at is how do we go about addressing some of the messages that we might see as it relates to muscle contractions and the ability to generate hypertrophy, the ability to generate muscle growth. And it really goes into a couple of concepts and a couple of misconcepts and misconceptions that are out there as it relates to what's going to trigger muscle growth. But before we go on, there's a couple of things we have to address. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And part of it has to deal with some terminology issues. And so we saw previously we're talking about fast twitch and slow twitch. But what does fast twitch and slow twitch really mean? Fast twitch and slow twitch is really referencing how do the muscles go about the contraction pattern once they get recruited. And so when we start looking at fast twitch and slow twitch, what we're really talking about is how is the motor neuron and how is the brain connected to the neurons that are going to connect to the muscles going to go about recruiting the muscle in order to do its contraction? in which we have a proportionality between how quickly the neurons can recruit the muscle, how quickly, can the ner- how quickly can the muscle undergo its depolarization, and how quickly can that depolarization lead to a release of calcium into the muscle to allow for a contraction to take place. All of this is based off of Henneman's size principle and the relationship between how quickly do membrane potentials change, the size of signal necessary to get that potential to change, as well as how much calcium is available to interact with the regulatory proteins to allow for contraction to take place, along with the twitch speed that the myosin head is able to move at. And so we look at fast twitch and slow twitch, what we're really looking at is we're looking at how do we go about the movement of ions around the muscle. How quickly do the movements of the ions around the muscles regulate the regulatory proteins? That's how quickly are we able to unblock the myosin from the actin? And then how quickly can that myosin do its contraction? Where fast twitch is able to do this much quicker than slow twitch, even though it's not that much different in terms of the overall speed at which we go about with the contractions, we'll take a look as we go through this. But then we also have to worry about some physics that comes into play, and particularly some physics terms that come into play. And so we talked previously about force. Force equals mass times acceleration. But we're really looking at terms of the kinematics of motion, which is what the question is, is asking about, is really angular force, inertia. And that is how quickly am I able to do my angular acceleration, the change of angle at the joint, relative to the mass that I'm moving. When we start looking at overload, which is what's going to trigger the growth within the muscle, we look at it based off of the force, the actual load, the mass, times acceleration is being asked to move, as well as the work that's being done in which we will have overload based off of mechanical load, 
coming in the mass that's being moved and the work overload that is how much movement is taking place and how long is that movement taking place. Here we're going to be looking at work based off of torque because once again, we're not going to be linearly moving. We're going to be annually moving. And this is where we have to look at not just how much load is being asked to move, how quickly is that load being asked to move, but also how long is that lever arm coming into play. And this is going to relate directly into the power output. And the power output has how quickly is that work being applied. And this goes into the lever systems and the type of mechanical advantages that we're going to get from the various lever systems. And the fact that our third-class lever system is a high-power lever system, but a low-force lever system, a low-strength lever system. We start looking at how muscles are functioning. Muscles are going to be able to provide tensile strength based off of the cross-sectional area and its ability to resist tearing. And so when I start to lift weights, when I start to go to the gym and exercise, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to provide a yield load that's going to cause mechanical damage to the muscle, that in response to the mechanical advantage, I'm going to increase the cross-sectional area so that I'm able to increase the tensile strength available within the muscle. And so when we start looking at the question in terms of the speed of contraction, we have to do is you have to look at, okay, what is the difference in the kinemax of contraction? That is the differences in the concentric, eccentric, and isometric phases of the movement relative to the speed at which I can move and the relative force that I'm able to generate from the movement in the form of torque. And so what we do know is we do know there is what's referred to as the force velocity curve. And the force velocity curve is going to directly relate to how quickly is the acceleration occurring. So what to remember is that acceleration is simply the change in velocity relative to time. And so if we look at the torque vectors that are available based off of the concentric, isometric, and eccentric motions that take place, in this force velocity curve, we end up getting, we end up getting what's referred to as a double hyperbolic curvature. We get an S-curve that takes place. And this S-curve that takes place, based off of what is summarized in Armstrong and in Alcazar's papers, is a change of about 48%, plus a little bit, above the isometric maximal strength in our normal force velocity curves. And our normal force, force velocity curves is based off of the shrinking, the concentric motion, or the lengthening, the eccentric motion, and the amount of torque that's available to be produced based off of the shrinking, the concentric, or the lengthening, the eccentric. Because of the kinematics of contraction, because of the way in which the contraction is taking place, if both the muscle contraction as well as the movement within the kinematic chain, concentric motion will always be moving against a load that is lower than the isometric maximum. Whereas eccentric motion, lengthening motion, 
will always take place against a greater than isometric contraction. And it's going to be temporary based, based off of what is the load that's occurring. However, I do know that on a maximal eccentric load, I'm going to exceed the isometric maximum, but I'm going to be moving the slowest, even though I might intend to move very quickly in order to slow or break the motion taking place. And so even though the weight or the limb is moving relatively slowly, the contraction speed can be quite quick in the eccentric phase. So even though we think about the eccentric phase as a relaxing of the contraction, we're not really relaxing the contraction. What we're doing is we're breaking or slowing down the motion in that, con in that kinematic part of the contraction phase. This slowing, because I'm able to get both passive and active strength coming from the muscle, I'm able to get greater than what I can get just from the active contraction that we see within the isometric contraction. And so it goes back to the question, can I maximum accelerate in order to generate force? Yes. Will that maximum acceleration lead to hypertrophication? Yes, within a caveat. We have to have some degree of overload within that muscle in order to generate a signaling in order to get growth. We can get it by maximally accelerating. And that maximum acceleration will be both on the concentric side as well as on the eccentric side. Because we're going to get maximal positive acceleration and then maximal negative acceleration, which we call deceleration. And so as long as I'm just flailing my limbs around in terms of trying to generate overload to get growth, as long as I'm controlling that downward motion, even if I'm not slowing as fast as possible, I'm going to be able to get the motion that is necessary in order to generate the growth that is being looked for. We start looking at this in terms of that contraction phase. We also talk about the kinematic chain, the linking of all of the joints and all of the muscles that's going to allow for motion to take place and how all of the joints and all the muscles are going to link together to allow for motion to take place where we cannot stipulate that we're going to get growth just within one muscle within all of the muscles of the kinematic chain. This is where I, I see reports of, oh, the anterior chain and the posterior chain. We can't really look at motions in terms of anterior and posterior chains. We have to look at it in terms of flexion chains and extension chains more than looking at it in terms of anterior chains and posterior chains. Because what we're really looking at is we're looking, okay, how do all the muscles, the bones, and the joints line up to allow me to do motions, not necessarily where are they at relative to the body? Along with the kinematic chain and the joints being laid out, we also remember our lines of pull and the fact that we're trying to maximize both the X and the Y components of the force vectors, along with the stabilization in the Z plane, if we're, look if we're looking at trying to do whole body motions in order to generate growth factors, in order to generate muscle growth, 
in order to generate bone growth, in order to generate tendon growth, in order to generate ligament growth. It's all going to be based off of how are the kinematic chain variables, how are all of the links in the kinematic chain lined up to allow for the maximization of that angle change within the lines of pull based off of both the fascicle arrangement within the muscle itself, the penation, the parallel versus uniponate versus bipinate versus multipinate versus convergent muscle, as well as how much hypertrophication, how much growth is taking place within the muscle, within the muscle fiber itself, that's going to allow me to maximize that X and Y angle changes so that I get both the sine and cosine additive factors within the muscle contraction itself. With the muscle contraction, with the line of pull, we also have to remember the lever systems that are going to come into play in terms of the muscle actions. They're going to generate the motions, whether it's a first class, a second class, or a third class lever system. And the relative mechanical advantages and disadvantages relative to each other that we see between third, second, and first class. Where the second class lever, because of the differences in lever arms, will have the greatest mechanical advantage, which is going to get the greatest return of strength for strength put in relative to either that first class or that third class lever. Whereas the third class lever, because the load arm is always longer than the muscle arm, will get the least amount of mechanical advantage coming, coming back to it, is unable to generate a high level of force relative to the second or first, but is able to generate the greatest amount of power out of all of the lever systems, which means that when we start looking, okay, how am I going to generate hypertrophication? Within this third-class lever system, I can, as we stated the other day, use my sticking points where I get the least amount of mechanical advantage as an isometric state or as an eccentric state in order to induce greatest amounts of hypertrophication based off of overload due to mechanical load. But at the same time, I can use this third-class lever system, which is going to give me, once again, the greatest amount of power return to move rapidly within the contraction phases so as to increase training volume and increase mechanical damage taking place within the muscle. That mechanical damage is taking place within the muscle is what's going to generate the overload response that we see within the muscle to cause hypertrophication. And so we have to remember that when we start, start looking at, okay, how am I going to be able to generate overload? Overload is obviously either going to be generated by working into fatigue, having a greater workload than what the muscle is able to do, or mechanical overload, having the muscle have to move against a larger load than what the muscle is able to move by itself. And this is where we start getting some mixed up messaging coming into play as relates to do I do a fast contraction or a slow contraction in the exercise in terms of am I going to be able to generate the greatest amount of hypertrophication taking place? Part of it is this misnomer about fast twitch and slow twitch. Part of this is the misnomer about load and time under tension and the ability to generate hypertrophication 
growth simply from time under tension. And so where are we getting wrong with these muscles? Well, it goes back to a little bit with that fast twitch, slow twitch. And what we understand is that we get this change in muscle fiber type based off of the recruitment that we get and how the recruitment that we get is going to, is going to dictate what type of overall responses we see within the fiber in which we have this pattern of recruitment based off of Henneman's size principle where the slowest fibers are the smallest fibers that will be recruited first and will always be recruited. And the larger fibers are the fast switch fibers that tend to only get recruited when we reach higher demand points within the muscle. And so what we see with blocking, what we see with, with Lenskos uh, reports is that we get this transition between fiber types where fiber type one is going to transition between the various types of fiber type one, where fiber type two is going to transition between the various types of fiber type two, based off of use and disuse of those fiber types relative to the mechanical loads being required of them to work against. The speed at which the twitches occur Allow for the type 1 fibers, the slow twitch fibers, put quotes around that. The slow twitch fibers will be recruited and will undergo their twitching, their contraction phase, at the point at which the fast twitch fibers have started to contract if the demand is high enough. And so, if I'm moving as fast as I possibly can, I'm going to be recruiting from the slow twitch all the way to the fast twitch. And the speed at which I move is going to be dependent upon the load I'm being asked to move against. Which means that if I'm going to just move my arm in order to generate overload, I have to do it to the point of excessive fatigue because I don't have a high load I'm moving against. But those big fiber types, you're going to fatigue faster than the small fiber types. Which means that I can move my arm and just my arms in order to generate mechanical overload. But it's going to take a longer period of time to do it, even if I'm moving as fast as I possibly can with no external load, than if I was to move against some external load. And this goes into some of the other things that we see in terms of responses to training based off of the velocity or the tempo of the contractions. If we start looking at what Lopes tells us and what Wilk tells us in terms of their findings, the faster I contract, the more mechanical damage I do to the muscle the faster the muscle fatigues in terms of neuromuscular fatigue and a higher training volume is able to be used. I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive that if I'm going to fatigue faster, I'm not going to be able to train for longer periods of time. But if you look at what Lopes was doing in terms of their contractions, they were doing 
a contraction that was one-fourth the time that we see for normal contractions. And so they had what they had a slow group, they had a fast group. And the fast group was moving in about a second per contraction, whereas the slow group was moving in between five and six seconds per contraction, which is the normal quote-unquote tempo training. The faster contraction groups had greater mechanical damage and a greater training volume and had greater hypertrophication than the slower training. But the faster training group fatigued faster, lost strength at a faster rate than the slow training group. If we take this and combine it with what Travis shows in terms of the emphasis of task-specific training, because we're training in third-class levers to move as fast as possible, even against excessively heavy loads, if I train at specific speeds that are necessary to carry over to what I'm planning on doing in an athletic event or in a real-life event, I'm going to be able to maximally accelerate in order to match what is necessary in that real-world situation. And when I do that, I get greater strength and greater power outcomes and greater strength and greater power changes that will correspond with a higher degree of hypertrophication of the tissues. Now, there's other people not referenced here that come into play as relates to intended speed of movement. And I have an old advisor from grad school who basically said, Everybody is intending to move as fast as possible, even if the load that's being placed to them doesn't allow them to move as fast as possible. And it goes back to what we're talking about in terms of that force velocity curve and the eccentric, isometric, concentric phases and the intended torque that is being produced based off of the speed at which I'm lengthening or shrinking that muscle. If I'm sending a signal down through my neurons, to move as fast as possible, I need that fast neuron moving, which means I have to use the larger neurons, which is going to recruit the larger muscle fibers in order to move as fast as possible. As a consequence of that, I'm also going to be sending signals to the smaller neurons and the smaller muscles in order to get that same amount of recruitment. Which means that when I'm recruiting to move as fast as possible, I'm going to be recruiting slow and fast twitch equally in terms of the total amount of recruitment in order to generate the contractions necessary in order to generate the motion. That is going to be the signals necessary in order to get the mechanical overload damage and the workload overload damage to trigger hypertrophication and to trigger said principal responses within the muscle that over time will allow for muscle growth to take place. So this whole idea is quite complex. I understand it's quite complex. Hopefully I addressed some of the questions that was being asked. Thanks for watching. Hopefully you got a little bit out of what was being presented here. 
Please make sure you have subscribed. Please make sure you're sharing out. Click that bell to get alerts for when you post new things. Get that five-star rating that you get that uh, you can give on the podcast as well as here on YouTube. Click that like button. Make sure you are sharing out with what we're doing and following on all of the various platforms that we're publishing on.